0: A lot of the money that I invested back into not only building the sport, building my own brand, it was five to seven years of really putting everything back in to you know, make this this momentum happen to, to be able to be this full-time athlete. To be a female in action sport, I think is like the best time it's ever been. John. Here's Aloisi for a place in the you World Cup. He's yeah! scored.
1: And when people talk about being uh, in the zone, I think that's as close as I probably could get to being in the zone because there were 83,000 people there, but I could only hear whispers in the stadium.
2: It's the same with sort of anything that, that I go into where, that I do. Like I used to play footy as a junior, and as a junior I went in there and I, I wore a sunnies and a hat when I played, and uh, you'd always get people questioning, like, why is this guy, how can this guy play this when, he's, when he can't see? So it's, I've dealt with it all my life.
3: Welcome to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport.
4: Hello, and welcome to Sport Integrity Australia's podcast Onside. I'm Tim Gable on this podcast we speak with eight-time bmx and mountain bike world champion caroline buchanan we also relive one of the greatest moments in australian sport john aloisi's penalty goal against uruguay which cemented Australia's spot in the 2006 world cup in germany and we chat to paralympian chad perris a bronze medalist in the 100 meters at the rio paralympics the 2021 world anti-doping code will come into effect on the 1st of january 2021 for athletes and others involved in sport it's important to understand the changes and how they affect you visit our website at www.sportintegrity.gov.au for more and over the course of 2021 sport integrity australia will be hosting a number of free webinars for sports on key integrity issues our next webinar is designed for teachers and will be on Wednesday the 2nd of December from 7 to 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. The webinar will familiarise teachers with the new Secondary School Resource Kit, which is designed to support teachers who teach topics such as supplements, doping, match-fixing and ethics in sport. You can simply find out more by emailing education at sportintegrity.gov.au to join. Well, our first guest is eight times BMX and mountain bike world champion Caroline Buchanan. Caroline has competed in two Olympics and is now preparing to attempt to qualify for next year's Tokyo Olympic Games. It's been a tough couple of years for Caroline, following an off road accident which resulted in a number of serious injuries. But she's back and ready for her third Olympics. She's currently ranked third in Australia, with the top two making it through to Tokyo. And Caroline is with us today. And Caroline, having a look firstly at the postponed Olympic Games, how hard. Has it been to to focus on the Olympics, given that delay?
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Tim. We've had multiple chats over the years throughout my sporting career. And right now, for me, the break has been a huge blessing in disguise. So for some athletes, it was devastating. They're at the peak of their careers. For me, I was building back from two and a half years off the bike with multiple setbacks and injuries. So I had a long way to go. I not only needed to rebuild myself back to my peaks and hitting my PBs, but the world had progressed, the sport had progressed. So I also needed to realise in those two years, there was new competitors, new girls that had stepped up and I was only getting older and I'd had all this time off. So I really had to build a solid, not only foundation, but team around me and COVID was something that brought me back to Australia and really reset my foundation. So it's been a blessing. Uh,
4: Firstly, coming back to Australia, you had been based in California, but you're back here in, in Australia now?
0: yeah, so for the last ten years of my career um, with BMX and mountain biking, the whole international scene is very much Southern California dominated. So I managed to spend you know majority of my time there and then travel the world through the two Olympic cycles of London and Rio. And my long-term goal was to always come back to Australia um, back to my roots. I thought that it would be after Olympics and within the next three to five years, but this was the perfect opportunity to you know get out of California and, reset some things back here in australia
4: injury wise it's been a tough couple of years hasn't it Uh, after that off-road accident at cooma a couple of years ago and injury wise it's been terrible
0: yeah, it's been challenging. So it was um, pretty highly documented. But for those that don't know, I had an off-road vehicle accident where, um, yeah, went underneath the vehicle. The roll cage crushed me and crushed my body. So in the process, it broke my sternum. My sternum bones then punctured my heart wall lining. Heart wall lining then bled out into my two double punctured and collapsed lungs. So double pneumothorax. Um, yeah, and then went into, you know, ICU, spent that time and then went through three full sternum reconstructions, 28 bolts, wires, plates, everything over a year and a half to basically fix my chest and hold my body together.
4: How are you now? How do you feel?
0: Good now. I've trialed and tested it. I um, <laughs> knocked myself out, had a concussion, bruised my lungs and got some rescans only about three months ago and that was really positive to, you know, step back foot into AIS and watch those, um, you know, pictures of this sternum bone that we've been watching for years now and to see that I have tested it, it's fully calcified, nice and white, everything's in one spot and all the metal hardware, wires, bolts and plates are secure too. So finally it was that, you know, breath of fresh air to go. I'm not only now training at the level I need to be for an elite athlete but I've also tested it, I've crashed and, um, you know, I'm fully healed.
4: You've got a good team around you, haven't you?
0: I have, it's... um you know, been a blessing to be in Australia, um, be in Canberra, obviously, for the start of my career before turning 18 and, you know, traveling the world and being that little 18-year-old that moved to America (laughs) to um, put her career first. And yeah, between family um, support, an immense amount of sponsors and network that I've built over the years, Um, some really good management agency team behind me, they've helped me be the professional athlete, which has also got through two years of being off the bike and still, you know, not having to go to a day job, which has been really refreshing.
4: Because uh, establishing that brand was very important, wasn't it, for you? You you basically became a social influencer for for a number of brands.
0: Yeah, social influencer, I guess you could call it. Um, As well as initially, the main goal was to build the the BMX brand in general so no one knew too much about BMX. We were the the new kids on the block and it was a really big goal of mine initially um, to make the sport known. So help get it on mainstream TV. So when it was footy on a Monday after they've had their weekend games, um, I was paying a media liaison to help make sure that my World Cup win and BMX was packaged at the same time. So a lot of the money that I invested back into not only building the sport, building my own brand, it was five to seven years of really putting everything back into, you know, make this, this momentum happen to, to be able to be this full-time athlete.
4: Because you, you, you are a full-time athlete. Do you think there is enough support for female athletes in Australia?
0: Um, it's growing and I can speak definitely on action sport. No better time in the world is it to be an action sport female athlete now with the Tokyo Olympic Games. Obviously it's delayed but it's still there. Um, surfing, you've got freestyle BMX, the speed. Uh, climbing, you've got now this 4x4 four four basketball. All these different urban... Elements BMX racing in the first Summer Olympic Games that we came into, we were those outsider like BMX bandits not really respected in like Beijing. Um, Whereas now it's like all these new influence of skateboarders and that's now I guess the norm for these Olympics with all these action sports. So to be a female in action sport I think is like the best time it's ever been Um, and I think it's really gone to the days of yeah female athletes really struggling there's so many opportunities with the right brands and the right people around you to to build that
4: with all these new sports coming on the scene we're seeing you know a lot of action sports sort of suddenly emerging do you think the integrity is still there do you think that it has been maintained within the sport given that a lot of these sports it's bursting onto the scenes now
0: yeah, it's a different time. Um, I mean, and I've been away from Australian sport, I guess, for a long time too, living in California. You sort of become a part of like a bubble of action sport over there. So, yeah, you know, I can't speak for team sports and things. I've seen both sides of being an elite athlete in Australia. I've seen that peak of the mountain is quite small. The build to the top to get to two Olympic Games, to be at the top, um, to win eight world titles, two Olympics... But then also to see the other side of it right now where you know I'm aiming for a third Olympics but I'm not on the Australian cycling team Um, you know and I'm not I guess you could say identified as that podium performing athlete so I've also seen the struggles of that side of it where like you don't have um, that sense of community and support which I did see for so long so I think yeah Australian sport the tip there's a lot of support but it's definitely that mountaintop and there's It's easy to fall off and there's not too much either side of that tip. Uh,
4: Because you're one of the elite athletes in Australia and have been for a number of years, obviously anti-doping testing is a very important part of it, isn't it, Uh, to make sure there is a level playing field. Did you feel as though you were being tested enough? Did you feel as though the competitors that you're racing against were were tested enough to to ensure there was a level playing field?
0: I think Australia has definitely been the top. I've seen, you know, living in America, still getting tested. I would always get tested over there. Um, you know, I've raced a lot of those countries like the Russians and some of the other European countries where you do doubt the amount of testing. You're naturally always going to have those um, thoughts that some athletes aren't playing fair. But for the most, I think Australia is one of the leading countries that does do it right, does test often. I mean, as soon as I step foot in the country, I've always been tested. I mean, even... Coming out of COVID, like so I've already been tested twice. So, and I'm not even on the Olympic radar. Um, so, yeah, coming back from injuries, they're always checking in, and um, it was it's good because when you want that even playing field, and you know, I think the future of the sport as well for BMX. It was if <laughs> how do you word this? The ones which I always thought maybe potentially weren't fighting fair. Karma always sorted it out. Um, you know, if you built that speed too quickly, you were never going to handle the skill of the track. So injuries and setbacks can happen and Karma generally takes its course. So yeah, BMX is more about skill and power and having that, you know, that finesse and that, that feel. Um, and it's so explosive and adrenaline and high fear and that risk reward is so high. Um, yeah, I think that's more the even playing field.
4: You mentioned there you're not on the Australian team at the moment, but you do have an opportunity, don't you, to prove your worth first week of December on the Gold Coast?
0: Yeah. So everything's a sliding scale. Everything's changing at the moment. Um, We were told three World Cups start of this coming 2021 calendar would count towards Olympic selection. Um, I've had one World Cup that I didn't tick the top five AOC Olympic box. So I basically, my one opportunity back from um, being out of the sport for two years, I didn't tick that box and, you know, that was enough for me to to not be on the Australian Olympic team, to not be, uh, not Australian Olympic team, Australian cycling team. Um, so, yeah, from here, if those International World Cups events don't happen, we're hearing that there's going to be some like mock trial Olympic testing, uh, basically mini trials events that will start the first weekend of December and then on the month every month. Um, So if the world doesn't open up and we don't have these competitions, it'll be head-to-head with the best in Australia to send the best team um, on the day.
4: After being at the top for so long, suddenly you're a little bit of an outsider. Does it give you more motivation? Do you think, well, I've just got to prove myself time and time again now?
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, fires, (laughs) I've always been sort of fired by that adversity and for me, yeah, it did. It lit that flame to sort of look at my own personal weaknesses and part of my team and go, you know, if I'm not necessarily allowed to step foot into the AIS or I won't be on these Australian team camps. um, At the moment with COVID, knowledge is really power and that, you know, belief is free at the moment, but there still is so much uh, a wall, you could say, when you do fall outside the program of even just knowledge and belief. So I sort of looked at that and said, you know, If I don't have that, how can I bring that in? So that nurturing environment, really leaning on family, leaning on friends, bringing in and investing into some other coaches that can really help keep me accountable. Um, Look into gaps, obviously, in my training program. Uh, One was obviously conditioning and gym and just building that strength and power, which is so key in BMX. So everyone from helping with a new lifting coach who's Every week, helping critique me. So, Grant Haynes has been amazing. Um, Julian Jones still continues to write my programs. Um, yeah, and then skills coach with like Luke Medill always checking in. And then, you know, my new boyfriend who's become a huge asset to that as well. So, yeah, it's to me, it's been a blessing, but I've had to reshape and, and recreate that support network sitting on the outside of this bubble, um, wanting to still achieve.
4: You mentioned the the team you've got and the focus that you've got on your own career, but you are also heavily investing in the next generation as well, young females coming through. That's something that is a huge passion of yours, isn't it, the next generation coming through?
0: Yeah, I've been running Buchanan Next Gen. Um, initially, it was a team turned into a scholarship program. So $76,000 of support now I've helped put back into women in BMX and helping Twelve girls now travel from Australia international to compete on the world stage and give them that opportunity. Once I saw the world stage at my first world championships in Paris, I knew that, you know, that was the future for me and that I wanted to be that BMX bandit. Um, So, yeah, that's been really rewarding to give back to them and now with the help of partners like Rubik3, they've come on board and said, you know, we want to help with this initiative and I hope to continue to grow it um, in the future.
4: Caroline, all the best uh, next year at the postponed Tokyo Olympic Games. Uh, Hopefully you're on the team and hopefully uh, you do well over there. Thanks very much for joining us today on Onside.
0: Thank you.
3: You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia.
4: Well, time now for From the Highlight Reel where we relive one of the greatest moments in Australian sport. And today we're reliving John Aloisi's magic penalty goal against Uruguay, which put Australia through to the 2006 Football World Cup in Germany. And John is with us. And John, uh, uh, can you believe that we're still talking about it today? Uh,
1: (laughs) It's funny because um, it's been brought up uh, since that night. It's been brought up to me probably nearly every day. Um, while I've been back in Australia because it just uh, it, you know, it was a huge moment for us soccer players but also for everyone that followed the game for so many years. We uh, hadn't qualified for 32 years and um, and even the, the general sports lover, it was uh, an amazing night and, um, and I don't mind talking about it of course because it was uh, such a memorable one.
4: Well let's relive it now.
1: That means
3: that if John Aloisi can score this goal Australia
1: will be free? there are you sure
0: I'm not sure what to do on that 4-2 so he wins it for us John here's Aloisi for a place in the you World Cup He yeah! scores.
4: geez still sends a tingle up the spine doesn't it
1: yeah look it, uh, it seems a little bit surreal from my side because it uh, it's nearly 15 years now and uh, it doesn't seem like it was really me that was there but um yeah, every time you listen to it, just the emotion of uh, Craig Foster and Simon Hill that were commentating that night. And then the, the crowd, uh, just the other day I was at a, a luncheon and uh, an AFL player that uh, was at the game uh, was telling me that's the best event he's ever been to. So when other sporting codes say that, then it must have been quite special.
4: Yes, it was voted by the Sport Australia Hall of Fame committee as one of the three greatest moments in Australian sporting history. So it's going to resonate forever.
1: Yeah, oh well, I'm pretty sure that'll resonate for a long time. It's, uh, you know, it's, remember where they were, uh, what they were doing, whether they were at the game or in a pub or at home. Um, I've heard some funny stories, but uh, it's, you know, a special moment. I was lucky to be part of because, you know, quite a few of us have been to... Uh, two previous World Cup campaigns in terms of qualifying and missing out. I remember the night in Melbourne against Iran when we didn't qualify with um, two nil up. I was on the bench, and you know, that was uh, a moment that will also fail me forever, but for the wrong reasons. And uh, so to be part of this squad and uh, to end up going to the World Cup was uh, it was a great feeling.
4: Can you remember what was going through your mind as you lined up on the spot for a penalty kick? would send Australia through to, to the World Cup?
1: Yeah, I remember it clearly because um, the day before I practised penalties and they were all down that end. Um, the reason being is because was, the game was so tight in Uruguay and and we thought that we had a good opportunity to win and but it could still go to penalties and we did end up winning 1-0 with Bresciano's goal. So I stayed behind and practised five penalties all down that end and I hit at the same corner each time. Um, And I remember Lucas Neal turned to me and said, "Aren't you're going to swap sides. I said, well, if we get a penalty shootout, you only get one opportunity. So the next night when I was um, walking from the halfway line to the penalty spot, it was uh, was a confident moment for me because I practiced that before. Um, And all I was saying to myself was uh, do exactly like you did the, the night before and we're going to go to the World Cup. And when people talk about being uh, in the zone, I think that's as close as I probably could get to being in the zone because there were 83,000 people there, but I could only hear whispers in the stadium. I was, my my focus was just on, you know, putting the ball down, having the run up I had the, the night before and uh, waiting for the referee to, to whistle. And then, um, yeah, I struck it nicely.
4: It's funny, isn't it? Because you had a representative career that spanned 11 years, 55 caps, 27 goals, had a professional career spanning 20 seasons with league totals of 459 games, 127 goals, yet for three seconds, uh, that is what people remember you for. And I guess you know, it's a great moment, but you, you had a long career around it.
1: Yeah, lucky I didn't miss. Those <laughs> <'Cause that's laughs> people would remember me for a bad, bad moment. Look, when you play sport you um you, you don't play to uh, you know uh, to please people for say you, you play because you want to win you're passionate about the game and then if you're lucky enough to have a long career uh, even better and, and the clubs you play for and also the national team you play for you you know you want to uh, be successful as possible and um, and the fans are important um but you also have to know there are going to be a lot of downs in your career and you know, over those twenty years, there's been there were a lot of up and downs, and this, there, you know, I I remember him well. Um, but you know that moment there, um, you know, again I'll say I'm, I was fortunate because yeah, it's one that all Australians seem to remember, and and I was part of it. And that um, you know, there, there's there's a lot that goes into a career. Just it's not those three seconds. There's a lot of build up towards that.
4: And you rip your shirt off too. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, that, that wasn't planned but uh, where I ran in the direction was planned because uh, I, I had a good feeling uh, that night but it, or in the days leading up that you know, could be part of a special moment I just wanted to know where the family was sitting so I asked the team manager the day before where they were going to sit in the stands and uh, that was the direction I ran in when I celebrated the goal
4: Football's been pretty good to you, hasn't it? Uh, not only as a player, as a coach now as a commentator it's been your life, hasn't it?
1: It has, and uh, you know, people say that you know when you're passionate about something, then you never work a day in your life, and uh, th- that's the way I feel. I, I've never felt that uh, you know playing was uh, was work, or or coaching was work. You know, and even now, you know, being a, a pundit on Optus Sports, it's, it doesn't feel like work. It's it's something that I love doing. I love the sport, um, always have. Again, there, there's some moments that are, are hard. And you have to get through, but um, it's not work. It's, uh, it's something that I've been in love with uh, since I was a kid. I've always wanted to play the game and, and uh, you know, it has been good to me, but uh, there, there have been a lot of difficult moments as well.
4: Yeah, it has been hard as a coach. You're going okay and then a few losses and, you know, it's, it's a tough time, isn't it, uh, as a coach when things aren't going well?
1: Yeah, it's a tough time as a coach because the spotlight's more on you, but it's also a tough time as a player, you know, when you're out injured and you can't play, you can't perform, then you need to work your way back into a side or you're living uh, 20,000 Ks away from home as a 16-year-old to try and make it as a professional. You know, So they're, they're, they're tough times as well. But as a coach, you just need to be mentally strong and uh, and know what you're trying to achieve uh, with what you have, you know, because uh, a lot of people don't know what you've got or what you're dealing with inside a club. Um, they only look at the the final result. So you you, you know, success can be measured on many ways in many ways. So I um, I know that as a, as a coach, and when I'm going into a job, you know, I know what I can do and and what I'm capable of doing. So having that self belief is important as well.
4: Uh, where was it? Hardest to play, Italy, England, Spain, or Australia? Where did you find it most uh, challenging?
1: Uh, I, everywhere was different. Uh, I, I think that uh, in Italy, I, I didn't enjoy the football as much because of uh, the way that they played their football back then. And I was in the lower side that uh, were fighting relegation and, uh, you know, were mainly. Uh, defending and you know it was all about the uh, tactics but the, the defensive tactics and being a striker it wasn't that enjoyable and plus you know your own supporters will get on your back very quickly so when you're losing you, you can't even go outside of your house and uh, uh, when I went to England I enjoyed the the end-to-end you know that the crowd were always with you and supporting you um, and and then you know over in Spain I think it had a mixture of both I I really enjoyed my time, not only as a player in Spain, but just the—that's uh, probably where I ended up having the most friends and really feeling at home. But um, Australia was great because you know you, you're playing with uh, you know players that have grown up in you know the same uh, background as you in terms of you know uh, different states, but you know going through national teams and and that. So I enjoyed playing back here in Australia as well
4: and John I mentioned you're a commentator now do you find that easy is it an easy transition for a for a coach a player to go into commentary
1: oh it's uh, it feels easy because you're talking about something that you love and uh, that you enjoy but uh, you know they're also it has to be um, you know you need to do your research and, and make sure you know what you're talking about now with uh, social media you can't make too many mistakes <laughs> or a pundit you know people pick it up on it pretty quickly so um you know as long as you're across everything it it can become easy and um, and it's like with anything you know you get better as as time goes on.
4: all right uh, great to talk to you John and no doubt in the lead up to the next World cup qualifiers um nobody's really sure when. Those qualifiers are going to take place, but no doubt uh, they'll relive that goal in the lead up to the next World Cup and hopefully Australia's going to be there. Thanks very much for joining us today on Onside.
1: Thanks for having me on.
4: Well, joining us now on Onside is Paralympian runner... Chad Perez. Chad won a bronze medal in 2016 in the 100 metres. He's a world championship silver medalist, preparing of course for the Tokyo Paralympics next year. But Chad has a, an interesting backstory. He's also a sports commentator, even though he's visually impaired. Chad is alongside us on Onside. Chad, firstly, how did you get started in, in sports commentary? Because obviously being vision impaired, it's hard to see the athletes, but how did you get started?
2: Yeah, I think. Um, well, firstly, thanks for having me. It's um, it's great to be in here today. And uh, yeah, well, basically, um, I got into got into athletics, um, and then just through that, getting the opportunity when I wasn't racing on a weekend to be able to go in and um, jump into the into the booth for one of the local meets, uh, just a local athletics ACT club meet was. Um, one of the things that I went for, and um, I think just um, having a crack at it, and I knew that it was going to be difficult because I can't see too well. Like I got between five and eight percent vision, so uh, it's not the not the greatest thing starting off as a commentator. You need to have basically perfect sight, I think, to be able to do it. And uh, there are a lot of struggles that I had do- had doing it, but um, I think using binoculars from start to finish and being able to identify bodies basically right from the start and knowing the names that I was calling is the the biggest challenge and I was able to get through that pretty quickly, I think.
4: So how do you identify the athletes? Is it by their movement? Is it by the way they run? How do you you identify athletes, given you can't really see their faces, you can't see their numbers?
2: Um, Usually by sort of colours, so... um, from oh we're in a in an era now, and, and you'd know as a commentator yourself with players wearing um, on the footy field wearing bright boots and all that sort of stuff. It's the same in athletics where a lot of people have a wide range of different coloured spikes on their feet to um, singlets and shorts and all that sort of stuff, and and identifying people that way as well. And it's just making a quick a quick note of it, especially at a club meet where there's not a lot of time to prepare. Um, a lot of time to prepare necessarily you get people coming in and entering on the day so you you don't have the time to be able to look and know who's going to be in a race You, you sort of rock up you get given a start list and you've got a you've got less than 30 seconds to figure out who's in that race so you sort of go down lanes two to eight um and then just sort of make an identifying factor of each one and also look at a seed time as well so you know who's going to be in that sort of top four or five as well so you know who you're going to be calling at the um at the finish line basically. Lanes four, five and six usually? Yes, absolutely. Inside lanes, it's always the one. Yeah. Just on, I guess, the reaction from
4: other sports commentators or people who, when you say, listen, I've only got 5% vision uh, but I'm here to commentate, what's usually the reaction?
2: Uh, it's usually a bit hesitant. It's, it's the same with the, sort of anything that, that I go into where, that I do. Like I used to play footy as a junior, um, Aussie rules footy that is. Um, and as a junior, I went in there and I, I wore a sunnies and a hat when I played. And uh, you'd always get people questioning, like, why is this guy, how can this guy play this when he's when he can't see? So it's, I've dealt with it all my life and people sort of uh, like asking, how can you do this? And it's mainly just going in there and you have to go and prove yourself to people that you can do it. Because I think it's um, it's always going to be one of those ones where you're vision impaired going into a game where you need to have good sight to be able to to call something and... Uh, and I know as a massive sports fan myself that uh, commentary is very a very subjective thing. and as soon as you hear a commentator that you you might not like something they've said or your your voice, there's a lot of people who are going to go offside on that that straight away, so you've got to be on the ball one hundred percent of the time. I mentioned a moment ago, you're
4: preparing for the Tokyo Paralympics next year. beyond Tokyo, have you, have you thought, well, gee, I'd like to get into sports commentary and and commentate other sports?
2: Yeah, I think um, it's something that I'd like to do, sort of um, on the side a little bit. Like I like athletics; it's um, it's quite a quite a decent, um, quite a de- decent one for me because I know that I know the game really well, and I follow a lot of other sports that I um, uh, sort of like, your, your footies and all that sort of stuff as well. And I'd like to be able to at least have an opportunity to do that at some point. Um, I haven't really thought about it too much post athletics. I did a bit of stuff um, doing like special comments work at, at the. IPC Athletics World Championships in 2017. So I was in the London Olympic Stadium there, in um, and I was sitting alongside two um, two guys, Tulson Tullett and Will Downing, uh, who do a lot of stuff in in Europe. And um, watching the one thing that I took out of it was the preparation work that they do, and and being able to um, being able to sit there as well. Like it's not it's not an easy it's not an easy job to be able to sit and concentrate. For these guys were sitting there for two weeks straight morning and night sessions just race after race after race getting themselves up for every single race it's it's very um it's very draining and one thing that i took from them was how impressive their um their preparation was and that's something that i would I'd like to try and do and be able to um be able to have a crack at um not sure if i if i'm sort of cut out to do it full time or whatever, but um, I'd definitely like to have a have a go at it in in some other sport at some stage. Let's uh, talk
4: about your, your track and field career. I mentioned a moment ago you won the bronze medal in 2016 in Rio. You're a world championship silver medalist. Predominantly the, the 100 metres is your focus, even though you do run 200, but it's not a Paralympic event, the 100. So the focus for you is, is very much on the 100 metres. What preparation do you go through? What training... Do you do for for one hundred meters because it's over pretty quickly?
2: Yeah, it is, and it's um, it, it's a lot of it's a lot of work behind the scenes with my, me and my coach um, and my coach Irina Dvoskina We do uh, tireless amounts of work um, six days a week, two training sessions a day most weeks, and uh, it's it's extremely difficult and grueling training. And um, I think that um, if there wasn't that that carrot at the end of the at the end of the tunnel with the um with the games coming up in Tokyo next year it'd be extremely uh, extremely challenging but I, I love the training and it's one of those ones where you you can you finish a day and you're absolutely knackered and you get to the you get to the bed and you you sort of don't want to get up the next day for it but then you you just rock up to training anyway and it, and you sort of go through and do it all again and um, when you're at the when you're at the start line and you know all the training's complete, you've, you've completely, it's funny, you completely forget about all the hard work that's gone into it at that point. You're sort of so excited about racing and that's all you can think about is racing. You you kind of forget about how much work has gone into it. So being able to appreciate that at this time now where we've got uh, just under a year to go until Tokyo 2021 now, um, it's, it's something that um, being able to st- sit back and have a look at now at the hard work that's going into it it's extremely difficult i've i've walked in here after a training session this morning which i was absolutely cooked after a big day yesterday as well so and uh, it's just something that we got to go through as athletes and i'm not the only one that'll that'll do it and it's and i know that all my competition are doing it as well so that's one of the that's one of the driving factors too there won't be much competition overseas
4: and that is predominantly what athletes of your caliber do. They go overseas and prepare a lot of the time uh, and athletes come out to Australia as well. It doesn't look as though there's going to be too much of that in the lead-up to the Tokyo Paralympics.
2: Yeah, I don't think so. There's there's a few competitions, um, European competitions and all that sort of thing, but the thing that we have to deal with here in Australia is being able to come back into the country and you're essentially going to have to wa- uh, waste two weeks in a hotel room when you come back. So we're going to do all that preparation here in Australia. It'll be... Um, Leading into this summer, staying here in Canberra, doing everything, all the all the hard work here, and then in the winter next year we'll, we'll go up to the the Gold Coast in North Queensland, and I think spend a bit of time in Cairns for maybe a month or two before those those games, and then go into uh, go into Tokyo straight from North Queensland. So, spending a bit of time in Australia is always good, and I, I and we do do a lot of preparation in Australia as well, so it won't be foreign to us, but. Um, the, the lack of international competition is, um, is there but it's not, it's not going to affect myself too, too drastically so. Uh,
4: just as a final question, what are your chances? Uh, you won the bronze in Rio. Um, you must be feeling as though, well, I've got that one out of the way, the first one. Uh, I know what to expect now.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I'm getting. I'm 28 years old now. I'll be 29 next year. And coming into those games, I've got a lot of experience. I've I've been to uh, I think five major championships now. World Worlds and Paris, and I think uh, I I've, I won silver at the last the last event. And I've got uh, a very strong competitor in Jason Smith, who's gonna uh, he's he's an Irishman. Who's gonna always he's always challenged me he hasn't lost this event at an international meet since i think about you know, 2006 when he started so he's undefeated and it's um is a very very tall task to get past but i think i'm putting in the work to be able to at least get uh, get within his sort of ballpark so that's that is the biggest challenge but all i'm doing right now is to be able to get through and do all of my work as much as i can and i'm going to benefit for the extra year training leading into tokyo i think it's going to be it's going to be an exciting one, and that's one positive that I took out of it was that that extra year's training is going to be, benefit me massively. So I'm I'm really really keen to get out there, and it, it's just under a year away, but it feels like it's tomorrow, and it's just going to be an extra year's wait really. So I'm really looking forward to it. Good on you, Chad. Thanks very much for joining us on the
4: side talking about your your commentary, and hopefully it eventuates um, beyond doing local track and field, and and hopefully IPC and a few other events that uh, might be around the corner, but. Well done on on that, but also good luck uh, for Tokyo next year.
2: Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. And now
3: for our segment from Left Field, where we answer a question from the public.
5: Hey, everyone. My name is Laura Britton. I'm an Olympic weightlifter and a clean sport educator with Sport Integrity Australia. The question I have from Left Field today is, how can we actually tell if someone is using a performance-enhancing drug? Well, there are a number of ways that an athlete can be caught doping in addition to testing positive on either a urine or a blood test. This includes monitoring selected biological variables over time with the athlete biological passport, which indirectly reveal the effects of doping rather than detecting the doping substance or the method itself. In addition to this, clues to indicate someone might be doping include sudden physical changes that don't align with their training and diet, changes in behavior such as becoming more secretive, associating with people they wouldn't normally or even unusual parcels being delivered to their home. If these behaviours are reported to Sport Integrity Australia, an investigation could occur and the athlete could be caught if they are using, trafficking or administering a banned substance.
4: Thanks for listening to Onside. I'm Tim Gable. If you'd like more details about Sport Integrity Australia, simply head to our website, sportintegrity.gov.au.
3: You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au, or check out our Clean Sport app.